Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. You can hear all our episodes, check out our bonus content, sign up for our email list, and contact us directly at songcraftshow.com. Also, please take a moment to like us at facebook.com slash songcraftshow and follow us on Twitter at songcraftshow. You're listening to I Try, written and recorded by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Talib Kweli. Emerging from Brooklyn in the late 1990s, Kweli has carved out a reputation as a gifted lyricist and has been called one of this generation's most poetic MCs by allmusic.com. A prolific collaborator, he is a member of multiple duos, including Reflection Eternal with DJ Hightech, Black Star with Yasin Bey, formerly known as Mos Def, and Idol Worship with vocalist Reese. He has placed seven releases in the top ten on Billboard's R&B and hip-hop albums chart, and has found success with the solo hit Get By, which was produced by Kanye West. Additional hits include the top five Black Star track Definition, the chart-topping Reflection Eternal singles Move Something and The Blast, and the top five single One for Love Part One, which was included on the Hip Hop for Respect EP he organized with Mos Def. Additionally, he and Common collaborated on Get Em High from Kanye West's The College Dropout album. Kwali recently contributed to The Killing Season from A Tribe Called Quest's 2016 comeback album that debuted at number one on the Billboard album charts. Others with whom he's collaborated include John Legend, Pharrell Williams, Jay Dilla, The Roots, Will I Am, KRS-One, Consequence, Anderson Pack, Anthony Hamilton, Mary J. Blige, Raheem Devon, Nora Jones, Music Soulchild, Sizzla, Justin Timberlake, and Jay-Z. Okay, well, before we get into today's conversation, we have some contest business to handle. Yep. Um, first of all, I want to mention that we are adding a week to the Joe Melson contest uh, for that signed CD. Yep. So you've got a, an extra week to get your name and info in on that one. And then we've also got this contest where we are giving away the Zombies book yep. um, from our Rod Argent episode. So I've come up with a very scientific method. Signed, of, by the way, by all four surviving original zombies. Pretty special pretty special book we should add four weeks for that <laughs> i think we've been inundated with enough entries so i think <laughs> i think we're good to go well and and this scientific process that i've come up with i i, I can't possibly add another name it's it's going to be too much work for me but what i've done is i've taken all the names that we've got and i've put them on different pages of this stack of post-it notes oh i see that and i'm gonna flip through it like a like an old flip book a little right. cartoon flip book that your grandpa used to make you okay and i'm as i flip through it you're gonna say stop at a certain point Oh, and and whatever page I stop on, that's the winner. So right? whoever's on the top is probably doesn't have a great shot. Unless I go backwards <laughs> and you take forever. All right. But for you the know most what? I'm not part, even going to look. Okay. You just flip and then I'll say You're stop. just going to hear the sweet sound I'll of just pages hear... flipping. Yeah. All right. All right. Are we ready? So here we go. Yeah. All right. Stop. All right. Chris Pippen. All right. You are the lucky winner. You happen to be on the right page. So... Uh, you can thank me for that because I wrote your name on that page. <laughs> but Chris, Chris Pippen, you will be receiving that amazing hardbound zombies book signed by all four zombies. Yes, that's right. Which is, is pretty awesome. Pretty amazing. And then now we have a Songcraft first, our first hip hop artist. Yeah. You know, uh, this was, uh, I think, a, a good experience for us because we got out of our comfort zones a little bit. I mean, <laughs> right. I think we both maybe had a cursory knowledge of hip hop, but we are certainly by no means... Uh, 
hip hop experts. And yeah. I got to say that uh, Talib Kweli was like the best teacher you could hope for. Oh, I mean, totally. You know, I, we just before before we started rolling, before we were recording, uh, we just told him like, hey, listen, man, we come today as students. You know, we, we <laughs> right. want to like we want to learn, be our guide, right. you know, help us navigate uh, the hip hop songwriting universe. And he was great. I mean, he, he really did like uh, basically he was our guide. It yeah. was it was really cool. And and, you know, I feel like I learned a lot from him. I felt like I was taking a master class in hip hop, but um, I felt like I learned a lot from him, not only about. This, the structure of his music, but about the kind of the ethos behind it yeah, and about the spirit of hip hop, especially when he was talking about, you know, there, there's a period where he talks about the whack MC and, <laughs> right. and what a, it sounds so authentic when you say, I know <laughs> the, the <laughs> whack MC. Um, but that, that was sort of a, a common enemy and a, a thread that you hear in so much hip hop. It's talking about, you know, these MCs can't do this and right, right. blah, 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 which I had heard a bunch of times myself before. And I had never realized what kind of a deep concept that is because to him, those guys were tarnishing hip hop culture. Right. They were not properly carrying the torch. And so instead of just being like, well, I'm better than this guy, it's more saying, you know, we are very protective of hip hop culture and what it is. Yeah. I was actually really interested in, we kind of talked about like country music and jazz and hip hop are the three genres where people who are, who love the genres are very protective of the definition right. of that genre of what it is. And when I brought that up to him, he immediately was like, well, that's because those are all music that come from oppression. Right. They come from like working class people, people who are basically getting by. And, you know, I, he said it so quickly and I'm like, yeah, Yes, that is absolutely it. That, that was such an interesting right. insight to me that, of course, we're more concerned with authenticity when it comes from music that really is like the music of the people, because that's not something that people want to see uh, kind of be cheaply capitalized on and, and commercialized in kind of a crass way right. um, when there are those roots that kind of come from uh, a social perspective. Yeah, and that kind of speaks to the commonality then between all those genres, you know, hip hop and country and and rock and even folk. And that that kind of reminds me uh, of another sort of common thread. You know, when he was sharing his story, he was talking about, you know, music kind of rising from the parks of New York. Yeah. And it reminded me of John Sebastian basically saying hmm. the same thing, but talking yeah. about the folk movement. Yeah, and John Sebastian was talking specifically about Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village, which is That's exactly crazy. what Talib was talking about, the exact same place. So you see almost these two generations yeah. of guys from two very different genres gathering in the same place, in the same sort of... Uh, you know, very different people, but a similar social context that where this musical movement is, is flowering. Um, and I, I think this is historically probably the first time that anyone has ever drawn a straight line between <laughs> John Sebastian and uh, Talib Kweli. So well done. Yeah. Well, you know what? And it's going to be done time and time again, you know, over the ages. We've set so a new paradigm. I'm glad that now we can look back at this moment. This is where it started. It began here. Yep. Well, let's listen. Yep. Talib, welcome to Songcraft. Hey, how y'all doing? Great, great, doing good. Um, you know, it was recently announced that that Jay Z will be the first rapper inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, even though it's been like forty years since hip hop first emerged as a as a cultural phenomenon, at least in in terms of uh, being recorded. Um, why do you think it's taken so long for the wider songwriter community to recognize the art form? Well, first off, there's a Songwriters Hall of Fame. I did not even know that. <laughs> there is, there is. Okay. Well, well, 
you know, I, I know a lot of them. I don't know. I, I, I have a good friend named Jay Electronica. He's a hip-hop artist. He's actually signed to Jay-Z's Rock Nation. Sure. Um, Jay Electronica is an anomaly because he's one of the most widely respected hip-hop songwriters. He's one of the most widely respected hip-hop lyricists. Just from his, his creative output songs that he's put out here and there, he's never dropped an album. Hmm. Huh. Wow. Um, he said to me once, Kwali, you and I are more talented writers than Shakespeare. And while that might sound like hubris and sound a little conceited, I was inclined to agree with him. Mm. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, writing gets better over time. And I think that mm. when hip-hop artists, not just myself or Jay Electronica, but I think we rival Shakespeare. And I think we, what hip-hop artists are able to do in, in song, because it's so loquacious and because it's so many more words right. that you need than the average, you know, uh, know pop song or love song or whatever right. um that it just the, the, that the best hip-hop writers are actually the best writers on the planet mm-hmm. well and i actually feel like i'm i'm hearing rhyme be reinvented by what's happening in hip-hop you know like hearing internal rhyme happening you know we're not just depending on the end of the line for for the way that the line is going to wrap around it's oh yeah pretty amazing yeah the, ev- the evolution of hip-hop is, 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 is doubles and triples they're called doubles and triples how many rhymes you can fit with inside a bar what rhyme is in inside a rhyme? Um, you know, you have a whole battle rap style that's that's focused on that. Yeah. It's like, well, is he doing how many drug doubles and triples does he have? Is is he, um, you know, old school way of rhyming is like, uh, you know, my name is Fred and I'm here to say you love putting triples in a major way. Right. And right. you know that that kind of that's like the old school, uh, you know, Sugar Hill style, and that evolved so much to where, um, you know, you have. Like, you have got cats who, you know, from Freestyle Fellowship, Mike and Nine on the 1991 album, Inner City Grios, where his voice is doing the same thing as a saxophone is doing, hmm. but there's r- words with it. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Well, I understand that your your mother is an English professor and that your father, who is also an educator, was uh, was a DJ at one point and, like, had vinyl all over the house when you were growing up in Brooklyn. Um, so it seems like you obviously come by your attraction to both words and music pretty naturally. Um, talk about what kind of influence your, your family had on you as a kid in terms of um, your creative sensibilities. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think you called it. Um, my father is a professor of sociology. Um, as well as someone who had a very passionate interest in music and collecting vinyl when he was younger. And my mother was a professor of English, so he mixed English and sociology with a love of music. That's definitely where I get all of it from. Hmm. Yeah, it makes and, sense. And um, my parents always took me to museums and libraries and stuff like that. So I got into hip-hop in junior high school hmm. because I wanted to be down with the cool kids. <laughs> I was already into music, but you know, I was into like more popular music like Duran Duran and Madonna and Bruce Springsteen and whatever whatever Z100 was playing or whatever was on the Z Morning Zoo yeah. I used to listen to on the way to school and um that's when I was a really really little kid but hip hop was making its way into the consciousness of my community through black radio stations I just wasn't my family listened to black radio stations so I grew up listening to uh, DLS and Kiss FM yeah. um but I personally liked Z100. I liked the more pop stuff because I was part of the MTV generation, so I was seeing that stuff on TV. They were playing the pop records on TV, so that's what I liked. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. And so hip-hop was a way for me to get closer to the kids, the black kids in my neighborhood who weren't listening to Z100. Hmm. You know, I wanted to impress the girls, and they were into hip-hop. 
Yeah. And so I got into hip hop to, 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 you know, I like, I wanted to like what the girls like. But as I got into it, it spoke directly to my sensibilities of what I grew up in, a, in my household. Listening. I feel like so many people kind of have that story. You know, I started my first band to impress the girls, or I started writing songs yep. to impress the girl. <laughs> and then you find yourself 20 years later and you're like, look, I'm actually affecting the world with this. It's not just about that one girl anymore. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man, God bless women. It's international women. Exactly. Yeah, perfect. Right, perfect right. timing. Um, you know, if you had to choose the top three artists who kind of most shaped your sensibilities, um, you know, in terms of who you became as a lyricist and, and a performer, who would you pick and why? Man, that is such a good question because that is something that I, I fleshed out a long time ago. Mm. So it's a pretty easy question for me to answer. Um, my style is directly influenced by Q-Tip from mm. Tribe Called Quest right. and by extension, the native tongues, the Dale Soul. Uh, uh, Latifa, Money Love, uh, Black Sheep, Jungle Brothers, but really Q-Tip is the one with his voice that I really was most drawn to. Yeah. Um, KRS One, yeah. um, in terms of the boombasticness of what he does, the knowledge, the um, attachment to hip hop, uh, and then early Ice Cube, hmm. those first two Ice Cube records, the fire and the anger. Um, and, and the passion that he just, that he exhibited. So it's like, I, I, I listened a lot to those first two Ice Cube albums. I listened a lot to a lot of Boogie Down Productions, Karis One, and a lot of Native Tongues, but with a focus on Tropical Quest. That, you, I can tell you have processed that thought quite a bit. That was <laughs> yeah. like a really organized answer. You're like, <laughs> I got this. Um, well, your first real appearance on the national scene came in 1997 with multiple guest spots on the debut album Doom by the Cincinnati group Mood, including the track Industry Lies. How did you kind of make the leap from being a kid, you know, who just sort of was putting together his own rhymes to somebody who actually had the chance to record? Um, it was a lot of different starts to that. Um, I was, you know, and, 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 you know, New York was a home of hip hop. Or since I was, when, by the time I was 13, 14, I was starting to go around in different neighborhoods and rap. With other, I was I was known as the nice. I was known as nice, you know, in hip hop. Mm. That's like your best. I'm, I'm nice. I was known as the nicest in my neighborhood. Mm. So I would go to other neighborhoods and, and battle other kids and go to. Really, with the center of it was Greenwich Village, uh, right. Washington Square Park. There was a community that came out of Greenwich Village, and a lot of those people, from Gene Gray to Most Def to Mr. Man from the Bush Babies, John Forte. These are people I was Dave Chappelle. Even these are people I was around at that time, right. um, in the in the in the village. Uh, a lot of writers: Saul Williams, Sarah Jones. Um, you know, these people all, all all around at the time. Um, sure. And so, my first John Forte was somebody who was my best friend and mm. who inspired me a lot. He produced my first demo, um, so I started recording little demos in people's houses. There was a producer named Self. Um, who had equipment and um, he had, you know, he, he would get off work and he'd give us like two or three hours. He would record. My first demo that people started paying attention to was produced by this guy named Self from Crown Heights. And um, after that, I, I was in college and my roommate in college was from Cincinnati. Uh, you know, after I dropped out of NYU, I stayed in touch with this guy, Divine, and him and his friends, they invited me out to Cincinnati, Ohio. 
and they because they told me that there was this group mood that I needed to meet. Yeah. So I went out there. I, I didn't have a job. I was I was I was kind of depressed. I, I don't know if depressed. I don't know if I was I've ever been depressed. But I was just kind of um in in like this funk. Right. I didn't have a job, and I just dropped out of school. And my parents were looking at me like, "You're uh, you're a disappointment." <laughs> so I was like, "What am I going to do?" And I went to, I went to Ohio because I had nothing better to do. I met these guys, Mood, uh, and they were produced. Uh, half of their stuff was produced by this guy, High Tech. Right. Um, but their music blew me away. Not only did their music and the quality of it blow me away, because I'm like, they're here in Cincinnati, Ohio. They have no connection to the music industry. Right, right, right. They just have raw talent. But they were, they were out there, you know, doing their thing. They were out there hustling way more than my New York friends who made music. All my New York friends who made music were broke. We yeah. were sharing hoagies. We were jumping the turnstiles. We were, you know what I'm saying? Like, we were stealing oranges off of off of fruit stands, we were we were broke. Right. Um, and in Cincinnati, these cats was had pathfinders, and they all had equipment in their house, and they were recording studio quality music. Yeah. But right. really, yeah. really good hip hop. And I started. I was attracted to that, and I started. I was working at the bookstore. I got a job at the bookstore in Cuba Books in Brooklyn, and I I started using uh, maybe yeah maybe a year after I met them, I started using my my bookstore money to fund trips to Cincinnati to record with high tech to the point where we had enough uh, music to have a demo. Yeah. Right. And my dem my demo with high tech is what got me heard yeah. in, in like industry circles in New York. Lyricist Lounge, I got the call of that demo. But at the same time my demo was making the rounds, the guys from Mood, they used their connection with me because I knew people in the industry. I just wasn't see I wasn't seasoned enough to get it. Right. My, I wasn't tight enough yet. Yeah. Their, their, their stuff was tight enough. So they started driving up to New York and staying at my yeah. house. And I started taking them around to parties and introducing them to people. And they got a record deal. They wow. got a record deal before I did. Hmm. Um, and it was for that album, Doom. So just because we, I, I was coming to Cincinnati, they were going to New York, I was spending all my time with them. At the time they got their record deal, that's why High Tech is producing half of that album. That's why I'm rapping on half of it. Because yeah. I was just there. I, I want to ask you about, you know, you mentioned that process of going from neighborhood to neighborhood and kind of battling people. And that's, you know... That's such an interesting picture to me. Um, you know, w when I moved out to L.A., I wanted to go find places to play basketball. And I would find on these outdoor courts, there were these kind of unwritten rules that you had to figure out. If you wanted to get into a game, then you had to figure out sort of the unwritten rules of who you needed to talk to and, you know, how to get next and all that. H how did you figure that out? How, how do you find kind of the boldness to figure out, you know, the rules of how you, how you even insert yourself into that process? Um, well, yeah, I'm not, you know, my process was, I'm, I'm, I, I started high school. When I started high school, I had raps. I had raps in a notebook that I had written. And we used to sit around and bang on the lunch room table. But it was just the freshmen. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, with, I was with freshmen, and we'd bang on the table and rap. But I was with a group of freshmen that got so good that all of a sudden the sophomores and juniors and seniors started giving me respect. Oh. The first respect I got in high school, which is I was just, I was the nice freshman in high school. Right. Um, and that was, you know, in a, in a building. I started hanging out in the village because that's where you could buy your cool jeans and your cool sneakers. I didn't go to the village to rap. Huh. That's just where all the, the people who were my age were buying all their cool things at. Hmm. But then I went, we would spend time at Washington Square Park. And a lot of it was just, you know, trying to buy some weed and smoke a blunt. <laughs> but, right. you know, then these ciphers would break out. Somebody would start beatboxing. And then it would, it, it would always start with one or two or three people. 
But what started to happen was those those ciphers that I remember starting at two or three people, by the end of, by the next summer, a year later, you having whole groups of people standing around, like groups of 100 people watching, you know, 10 people freestyle. Wow, that's cool. And then you start to see those unwritten rules. Then you start to see those rules develop. Mm. Like people start to be like, wait a second, that sounds like you wrote that, bro. Wow. That don't sound like freestyle. Then really? it starts to be like, <laughs> yeah, and then it starts to be like, um, you know, you kicked that rhyme already. It starts. There starts to be these rules wow. and these crews. Somebody who was out there that was dominating was supernatural. Uh, hmm. Supernatural to this day is considered one of the best freestyle MCs. Right. And he was my. He was one of my best friends at the time. And Supernatural was so dominating in the in that Washington Square Park scene um, that he used to rhyme and people used to show up from all over town to battle Supernatural. Wow. And he would battle, but it would be it would be a visceral experience because he would battle you out of the park. Right. You know what I'm like he's rhyming at you until you leave the park. Wow. And he's rhyming and following you out the park, shouting freestyle rhymes. Oh you know that's you know that's terrifying. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Well, you mentioned high tech a moment ago, um, and you guys, of course, formed uh, Reflection Eternal, introducing yourselves to the underground hip hop world with the track Fortified Live in 1997. The highest caliber, make it a night to remember, like shallow, escape to a van or what I got a planes get shot down at Cuban airspace over the water. I got insight, it's a clear case of reading your aura. Man, what you got for us as my black men stand in line like a chorus, making these MCs our sons like chorus. I'm always taking shots like a Japanese tourist. Get the picture, fly the cause of so no exposure. One of the guests on Fortified Live was Mos Def, who is now known as Yasin Bey. Um, and you guys obviously would go on to, to form the duo Black Star, which was in turn produced by High Tech. So obviously, um, you know, the, the former is a fellow MC and the latter is a producer, but obviously two very important guys in, in your career. Talk about the roles that, that those two guys played in your own creative process as a lyricist when you were all kind of starting out together. Um, high tech and most deaf. You know, they push me definitely, but they push me in very, very, very different ways. Most deaf is pushes me in a very encouraging way. Like most deaf, we formed a group because he was a fan of mine. I was a fan of his, but he was a fan of mine. I was a fan of his. He already had a couple of singles out. He was already known. He was already hood famous yeah. by the time I was a fan of his. He was a fan of mine. Nobody knew who I was. Hmm. He was a very early champion of me. Um, and so he was just very encouraging. Anything I did, most Def was just amazed by. Yeah. And he has this thing where he can take very intellectual concepts right. and put them in very, very simplistic rhymes. Hmm. His hmm. rhyme style is, is simpler than mine, and that's something that I was always striving to do. So to being around and challenging me as a writer, um, Hatek is not vocal at all, which is what I guess he's such a good producer. Mm. And he's very, very much a visionary. Yeah. He has a very specific, clear idea that he's trying to get at for what he's trying to hear, but he's not so clear with communicating with yeah. it. So Hatek communicating with it was, was, was a lot tougher, but it was like it made me stronger. Mm. Hatek would just be like, that's not good enough. Mm. You know, and... Yeah. <laughs> And so um, it was the exact opposite experience with most deaf. Where most, so it, it just made me, um, it made me have to learn high tech. Yeah, yeah. It made me have to learn how to work around him and what his signals were. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And and it just made me self reflect and self examine before I even get you know uh, get in the booth with him. He was he's very much a proponent of later in our career when when it got very my, I developed my own career career. 
I didn't have to go to Cincinnati anymore. Yeah. Yeah. He was always a proponent of, we need to be in the same space to work together. Yeah. And I yeah. think that was very important. Yeah. Well, that, that sounds like a, a really positive, creative environment. You know, on one hand, you have that encouragement that says you can do this, mm-hmm. and the other hand says you can do better. Um, and calls him <laughs> right. to a higher standard. Um, and before Reflection Eternal released a full-length album, you first put out the record Most Def and Talib Kweli Are Black Star in 1998. And that album hit the top 15 on Billboard's R&B chart, and the first single, Definition, reached number three on the rap singles chart. Let me demonstrate. Walk in the streets is like battling. Be careful with your body. You must know karate. You think it's all is bulletproof like Jade. Stop acting like a bitch already. Be a visionary. And maybe you can see your name in the column of obituaries. Third grade teacher reading it, talking about I knew he'd amount to nothing. Neighbors like he was the quiet type. Who'd have thought they was fronting? Talking loud like you and RCA. Get carted away with body parts and trays. What a way to start your day. Yo, it's like one, two, that album, which is now regarded as a touchstone of socially conscious hip-hop, it was seen by a lot of people as kind of a statement against negativity and violence in the genre. When you were writing your verses for that album, was there kind of an overall guiding theme that you were pursuing, a message that you kind of wanted to get across, or did that project just sort of come together organically? Um, yeah, we, there, was a, there was a theme, but I don't think we realized it when we were doing it. Um, mm. What's interesting is I used to work for Sean Diddy Combs, mm. and I have good, I have good relationships with him and that, that sort of party-type hip-hop crew back then. He grew into this, to where he's a shiny suit guy, and he signed Mace. Mm. And it was like, it was like the celebrate. He puff broke the rules. Let me start talking about the rules, the un- unspoken rules. Yeah, yeah. The unspoken rules was, if you sample, we're going we're gonna to hold you down. Like, we're going we're gonna to respect the sample, but you got to dig it. That's where the whole digging in the crates, Diamond D, Showbiz, that Joe A.G., right. that comes from, like, where, where, that's where that Tribe Core Quest is so, Q-Tip as a producer is so revered because of his penchant for digging for this, but they, they said, okay, we're not going to use the obvious Parliament Funkadelics or James right, right. Brown samples. We're going to dig harder and find the jazz samples. That's what that was hip hop. Right. And Diddy was like, I'm sampling David Bowie. You know, <laughs> right, I'm, right. I'm sampling Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie. I don't care. Diana Ross. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. Whatever. You know that song. Dance to it. Yeah. You know what I'm like, <laughs> and so that was, that was considered sacrilegious in a, lot of, in a large part. So I was part of a community that, even though I, was, I come from the same hip hop family tree as Diddy, the community that I was involving myself in, that was, we were like, what are y'all doing? Like, no, we felt betrayed. Yeah. And yeah. we felt betrayed by the subject matter. Like, we're not drinking champagne. We don't have big, nice cars. Right. We're, we're still hopping the turnstiles. <laughs> wow. What happened to the culture of hip-hop, where it's about spinning vinyl and breakdancing and whatever, what happened to that? that we, were, we, were, we, were, we were retro. We wanted, to, we, wanted to, we wanted to impress Crazy Legs. We didn't want to impress Diddy. Yeah, yeah. We wanted to impress Cool Herc. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. that, that's what we were at with. So I think the like, like I mean, we literally did double trouble over from Wild Stop. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like here's yeah. a little story that must be told about two bad brothers. Me and most were literally like we on that song, "Be Boys Will Be Boys." We shotting out the Rocksteady crew. Yeah, huh. yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. The Rocksteady crew at that point were already you know middle aged men by that point. <laughs> right. You know right. what I'm saying? But we, <laughs> we were shouting them out because that's what we were. That's what we wanted to impress with our with. And that was that's where we were at with it, and I think that that's reflected in the lyrics, um, and I think that a lot of people felt like that. Yeah, yeah. and um, 
And that combined, I think we were talented at it. We're good at it. We picked the right producers. We were, we were very, we were, we were in our craft. But Raucus, linking up with Raucus, Raucus was also capitalizing on that movement because I remember you going to Tower Records back then and you couldn't buy Bad Boy on vinyl. Huh. Hmm. You could only buy it on CD right. because the record companies that were distributing, I think it was Arista at the time, they were moving away from vinyl. So they were trying to move the industry in a direction away from vinyl because they felt like vinyl was too expensive right. to produce. Yeah. And the art form was built in the vinyl, so there was a huge pushback where real hip-hop, we're like, we're real hip-hop, we're about vinyl. Rock is capitalized on that by making the Black Star and everything else they were doing uh, pretty, you know, very engaging, interactive vinyl pieces. Well, in 2000, you and Mos Def organized an EP project called Hip Hop for Respect to speak out against police brutality in the wake of the NYPD shooting of Amadou Diallo. Um, and the concept was to organize 41 MCs to represent the 41 shots fired by police. Um, the top five single, One for Love Part One, featured several guests, including you and Common, trading lines back and forth. Um, now, to put together that kind of project not only takes creative vision, but I'm sure a ton of just coordination and organization. And in terms of, of songwriting, um, hip-hop is probably the most collaborative genre that there is. Uh, talk a little bit about how you even begin to approach the writing process when there's so many moving parts. Um, uh, uh, Karis one had a song called Self-Destruction, the Stop the Violence Movement. Right. And this song... Um, impacted my life in a huge, huge way because my favorite rappers in the world, from MC Light to Dougie Fresh to Be Nice to Karis One, were on that record. And the idea that all these rappers could make a song to stop the violence, yeah. it kind of blew, blew my mind. Right. And um, it just was a huge sort of um turning point in my life as far as what was possible. Yeah. So when I had a little bit of a claim, you know, when 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 Black Star dropped, we we we. We did well. It was it was all over MTV and BET, and people were hearing it, and, and I, I felt like I was a rapper for real. Yeah. And so when 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 uh, Amadou Diallo was was murdered, it it reverberated because I think I might have been the same age as him at the time. Oh, um, and um, just forty one shots was just such a so 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 much overkill yeah. that it just it shocked it shocked the city almost to like you know Emmett Till levels. Yeah. Of shocking. And um, and I found myself and most deeply in a position to say something about it because we were being heralded as like this new conscious movement. Right. So I was like, okay, well, you know, why not do something that's like self destruction? Um, Devin Robinson, rest in peace, was a, a publicist at Raucous. She, on the publicity side, she fell in love with the idea because she was trying to push Black Star, and she knew that the angle for Black Star was social activism yeah. so she and God bless her for this because I do know that as a publicist she knew that it would make us look bigger but she really went the extra mile to help us organize you talk about all the organization she went the extra mile to help us with that yeah. um, she booked the, she, she convinced Rockets to pay for, to pay for the studio time she got the contacts for all the artists she did that legwork yeah. Yeah. Um, I, me and most dev we were in the studio we gave creative direction uh, I flew down Devin came up with the idea of let's have organized noise from Outcast produce the song. Outcast wasn't as big back then as they are now, right. but um, that was we were like we're going to make it national, like it's not just New York. But having organized noise produce it. So you know, Rockets flew me down to Atlanta, and I spent two days working with organized noise on this track. Yeah. Um, 
which was, you know, that was amazing for me because I, by that time I was already a huge Outkast fan. Sure. And I'm like, okay, this is where they make the biscuits. You know what I mean? <laughs> I just, like, I'm, I'm, I'm here in the dungeon. I'm here in the dungeon. I'm in the dungeon. Right, right. I'm, I'm hanging out with the dungeon family. Like, this is literally the dungeon family. Um, you know, they, they made the track, and so... We, and we what we did we had a big session at Sony Music and we didn't know who, we had no idea who was going to come like I think Prize from the Fuji's was the first person to show up mm, and really? he didn't even rap on it you know uh, Rock Digger you know Fuji Rap Common Val Munch Pasta News these were all friends of mine but these were all people who at that time had records or could get records for the radio right. so yeah, that's yeah. what we did out of the really it was more like 70, 80 MCs who came through out of Jeez. people came through we picked them you know the more popular ones to put on the main single yeah it's yeah. like we are the world I mean, <laughs> right? yeah i mean right. you know we are the world if we are the world was it was it was a was a reference point as well yeah yeah well in uh, in 2000 uh, train of thought reflection eternal's debut album was released uh, it hit the top five on the r&b chart and it featured two successful singles move something which reached number one on the rap singles chart and the blast, which got up to the number two spot. Yeah, you pronounce my name. Molly. Any questions? I bring many blessings with my man high tech, and he from the natty. We make the sky crash, feel the fly track. Get your hands up like a hijack, fists in the air. Molly. Keep them there like natural mystic or smoke when the spliff's lit. It's a revolutionary. They ask me what I'm writing for. I'm writing to show you what we're fighting for. Say Talib, Talib. You know, there's a line in the first verse of The Blast that says, they ask me what I'm writing for, I'm writing to show you what we're fighting for. Um, and as someone who's passionate about activism and social justice, are the things that you were fighting for in 2000 the same things that you're fighting for today, 17 years later? Why would you ask such a sad question? <laughs> An important <laughs> so, question. I mean, yeah. Absolutely. The things that I'm fighting for, the things I'm fighting against are the same things. But what does change is the language, I guess, the language and the, you know, the knowledge and the experience. You know, um, I, I've, I've, I've done the, the hip-hop respect thing. I, I did the thing with Harry Belafonte. I've, I've, I, I have a different view. I wouldn't, for instance, I wouldn't do hip-hop respect again. I don't think it would work for this time. Right. It barely worked for then. It barely worked then. I didn't know it made any chart until you just told me just now. Because <laughs> my experience with it was the industry didn't care at all. We had no support from the industry. Yeah. I remember self-destruction, seeing that video everywhere. It was on the radio. We, they didn't treat, and we worked hard on hip hop respect. I mean, we had organized noise producing it. They, Outkast had huge records out at the time. Yeah, yeah. We had all star cast. That record didn't get any radio play. BET, as a favor to Devin, ran it on Rap City a, a few times, wow. but it was never made like their main show. Like yeah. it, never, it never, it never went anywhere. So it kind of turned me off yeah. Um, yeah. from from doing that type of thing. So I'm finding the same things, but you learn more and your methods change and. You know, and then and then and then somebody like Trump gets elected, and then it it kind of just fucks up your whole idea of, of what you should be focusing on. Right, <laughs> Start right. focusing on Donald Trump, like right. so that that's happening too. So it's like you know, I never imagined, you know, when you know when I first started my career, Trump was a punchline in hip hop. Right, he was like a a decadent symbol of cartoonishly opulent opulent wealth. You know, yeah. like now it's like oh, he still whole, is. Like, <laughs> yeah, he is. But now, he's, now, he's, now he's created policy. Yeah, yeah. right. It's, and it's death by a thousand cuts now. Right. Yeah. Um. Well, you know, in terms of of 
best known material and, and hits and all that sort of stuff. Uh, one of the best known singles from your career is Get By, which appeared uh, on your debut uh, solo album, Quality, which was released in 2002. That track was produced by Kanye West before he emerged as an artist in his own right. Um, and um, then you and Common both contributed verses to the song Get Em High off Kanye's debut, The College Dropout. Um, I understand that you had a lot to do with uh, with giving Kanye a forum to kind of find his voice as a, a as a performer, um, and that he's kind of given you credit for laying the groundwork that led to his success. Talk a little bit about uh, your role in in his development. Um, I met him. He came to the studio when I was working on my solo album Quality. He came looking for Most Deaf because I guess Most Deaf had met him before me, um, and Most was supposed to be at that particular session, but he wasn't. Um, once Kanye told me who he was, I had heard his name because he did some beats on Beanie Siegel's album. I didn't know he rapped at all. Um, I just knew he was a, he was an up-and-coming producer that seemed to be talented. Yeah. But that I asked him to play me some music, and the music he played me that night was so fantastic. It was the same thing. Remember, I told you when I went to hear Moose stuff and the yeah. the high tech was producing, and the yeah. quality was like, how are you? How are you not famous? <laughs> right. It was the same impact that I when I heard Kanye West music the first time he played for, played it for me. I was like. How does the whole world not know about this? Yeah, um, yeah. And I was amazed. And I, I, he didn't play me Get By, but there's other records in that that he played me that day that ended up on my album, um, Get Good to You and Gorilla Monsoon Rap. Um, and then months later, he played me Get By, but he it took a minute for him to sell me Get By because it was by that time he was growing as a producer. Yeah. And he was more more interest in him. I think Mariah Carey wanted it. I had to like I called him every day like, No, not Mariah Carey. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um and so he gave me the beat and the song did really, really, really well. And a year later, Kanye had made it a mark as a rapper, but the, the the word in the industry he was trying to get a deal. And the word in the industry was Kanye thinks he can rap. Hmm. That was the word in the industry. The word in the industry was everyone was trying to get hit, pay him for his beats. No one wanted to sign him, huh. even Rockefeller. You know, he was he was making all the Rockefeller hits, but no one wanted to hear him rap. I personally thought he could rap. I thought his raps were incredible. I I, I was confused. Huh. I, you know what I think it is? His beats were so good. They were. I I think his people were just blown away by the production. Yeah, and they almost overwhelmed what he was doing. Yeah, it was like he would come into the meeting and play you ten beats. And he'd be like, oh, you're blown away by all of them. He's like, oh, I rap too. And you're like, okay, whatever, whatever. But what is that beat? Yeah, right, <laughs> right. right. You know what I'm right. That's what it was. And so I went on tour opening for Common. And this, it's, it's funny how Common is like the constant in all of this. Mm. <laughs> right. Um, I, I went on Common's Electric Circus tour, and Kanye, Kanye was lamenting to me about how no one was taking him seriously. So I was like, well, come on tour with me. Because I... I I felt like he had he had one record out. He had a record out that was a, he was on the Jay Z album with Timberland, a point out the bounce, and he had a mixtape that he had put out. He had gotten in a car accident, and then he did a Get Well Soon Kanye mixtape. So he had like songs that were bubbling on the internet, and he had one song on the Jay Z album. But people knew about him, 
like the people in the industry knew what Kanye West was a was a phenomenon at that, that point. Right. The people who were coming to see my shows, they didn't know who he was at all. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, so even though he was like an industry darling that that, that my fans didn't weren't aware of, and he was really like wearing like chains and rapping about you know white bitches and you know rapping about Rockefeller decadence right. at, at the Quali show. So a yeah. lot of my fans were just not understanding right, why right. I even had him on stage. Um, <laughs> but I knew why. I, you know, I, I liked it. <laughs> right. um, sometimes he would try to overtake the show. He's very, he was always very arrogant in the best way possible. Uh-huh. Um, right. Sometimes we had to sit down and be like, you're, you're bugging. Like, calm down. You know what I mean? But, <laughs> right. but, <laughs> but he would always be like, my bad, my bad, no, oh, right. my bad. Right. And he would always be gracious and humble about it. And, and I, I mean, I saw it. Like, every, what, what I'm amazed about is he was straight up telling me, he was like, I'm going to wear all polo, I'm going to be the best-dressed rapper, and then I'm going to start my own clothing line. Then I'm going to have, uh, my first album is going to be called College Dropout. The next one is going to be called Late Registration. Uh, the song, he's, when he played me the song, Jesus Walks, play me the Hey Mama song. This is going to be, I'm like, dude, you don't have a record deal. <laughs> right. He told, me all, he told me all of this before he had a record deal. Yeah. Right? And then I watched yeah. him do all of it. That's amazing. <laughs> well, back in 2003, Jay-Z's track Moment of Clarity from the Black Album included the line, If skills sold, truth be told, I'd probably be lyrically Talib Kweli. Now, this was an era when your fellow artists and collaborators like Jay-Z and Kanye were recognizing you as an influence while they were also experiencing crazy commercial success. Um, and some critics have suggested that your 2004 album, The Beautiful Struggle, was a bit more polished, um, more intentionally commercial with guest appearances by folks like John Legend, Anthony Hamilton, Common, Faith Evans, and Mary J. Blige, who joined you on the first single, I Try. Come on. As a creator, talk about the competing demands of art and commerce as you um, seek to sustain an audience and a career over the long haul. Um, well, I will say going into the songwriting of that album, I put pressure on myself hmm. to utilize these newfound resources to create the album that I heard in my mind. So it's like when you when you hear the Beatles, when you first hear the Beatles, it's like you know, four of them, and they're just jamming out. It sounds like they're in some garage. And then four years later, they got the wall of sound. Right. You know? yeah. and, and so I think every musician goes through that. Every musician really hears strings in their head at some point. Yeah. Um, and and then why, why why wouldn't you? Now you have the money and the resources. Right. Why wouldn't I call Pharrell? Why wouldn't I call Mary J. Blige? Yeah. I'm saying like, so that's, what it, that's really where I was at, where I was like, okay, my message is not changing. My, my the type of beats that I'm picking, high tech, Infamously, did not produce on quality, but he right. came back because we weren't even we weren't even getting along. Mm. The process of recording Reflection Eternal had fractured our relationship. Mm. Until we weren't even speaking to each other. Yeah. By oh. the time I got to Beautiful Struggle, we had to started to develop in a relationship again, and so he produced three songs on that album. Yeah. So it, it was it was very ironic that people would be like, I, people would say to me, "I don't like the Beautiful Struggle album. Go back to that." 
it, I got back with him, and y'all didn't like it. Yeah, <laughs> y'all, y'all like, old days. Y'all yeah, y'all didn't like where, where high tech was musically as well. Yeah, because high tech was experimenting with new sounds. You come out you, as a hip hop producer, you sample, you get sued for the sample, and then you start producing different. Yeah, huh. you start being like, wait a second, there's money that's involved in here. Yeah. I'm going to learn how to play this keyboard a little bit more, <laughs> um, right. and then it changes the way your music sounds. Right. Yeah, you know sure, sure. Um, and then people are like, why don't you go back to that? Because it's expensive. That's why I'm not going back to that. Um, <laughs> right. You know, but, but yeah, there were, there were, so there were, there were creative decisions that I made to, 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 to have like someone like a Mary J. Blige, because I, you know, to me, I grew up listening to Mary J. Blige. That wasn't outside of my wheelhouse. Right. Sure. But what I, what I, what I see in retrospect is a lot of my fans, saw me as I just belong to the underground. Mm -hmm. I'm not supposed to have records with Pharrell and Mary J. Blige. That's not what I am. And I, that's when I started realizing that maybe the way that fans see me, that see underground hip-hop in general, right. is different than my experience as a black man at this point now getting older than a little bit of some of my fans. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about... Uh a line on Eardrum, your third solo album released in 2007 uh, from the song Hostile Gospel Part One. Uh, there's this line that says, there ain't no love and no respect. It's like a gang. It's like a club or a set. Hip hop's the new WWF. Um, and I, I noticed that in a lot of your lyrics, there's sort of commentary on the genre. And I think that like country music, jazz music, and and hip hop are the three genres where people are like particularly interested in the integrity and the purity of the genre um and so kind of with that in mind this is a, a two-part question one does it matter to you how hip-hop in general is perceived beyond just how you as an artist are perceived um and secondly from your perspective do hip-hop artists have a responsibility to function as cultural commentators it's a good question um i think by the nature of hip-hop being music that's born out of oppression and music that's born out of struggle Music is always, hip-hop music is always going to be linked to culture. It's not music, it's not hip-hop. If you say, I, I just want to hear the music and I don't want to deal with the culture, you're outing yourself. You don't care about hip-hop. You just set aside hip-hop. And hip-hop is unique. Jazz is like that too. I mean, uh, music that is from people of color, from marginalized people, from oppressed people, is unique in that manner. Um, even rock and roll, which technically is from oppressed people. Yeah, um, right. So I do, I am of the mindset that if you call yourself hip-hop, you absolutely should be uh, curating culture. Hmm. Most people who listen to hip-hop, most, don't know that. Hmm. So I don't, I don't blame people for what they don't know. Yeah. Um, you know but I, I, do, I do think that uh, hip-hop as a writing tool, there's, there's a writing tool in hip-hop, and there's like this staple of hip-hop that you don't hear today in the new hip-hop artists like Little Yachty and Little Uzi Fern. They really don't care about what I'm about to tell you. But, which is why a lot of old-school hip-hop artists are very upset at some of the newer, newer hip-hop artists. Yeah. But um, the traditional hip-hop is, is, is railing against the ubiquitous whack MC. Mm -hmm. The whack MC right. is the first thing that I wrote about. Wow. How could these MCs be so whack? It's Why a common is enemy. Everything's so whack. It's a common enemy. You don't even the nameless, faceless whack MC out there <laughs> right. that's fucking it up for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I've he's been the arch enemy since I was first started writing hip hop songs. So you know my earlier hip hop songs are definitely about how whack everyone is. Yeah. Um. And you know that's it's 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 just a gut reaction to protect culture that's ours. You can't have it. I'm mm. protecting you, and then you, and so. 
there are classic hip-hop songs from the classic hip-hop eras that are about just whack MCs. Yeah. Right. You know, when you listen to, like, How's the Pain Jump Around, a lot of bars dedicated to just everyone's whack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's harder to t- in today's hip-hop to make a song about that. Now, hip-hop is, is, is more corporate. Songs have got to be more about what other songs about. it got to be about... You know, I got a car, you know, I've got some champagne, or I'm in love, or I like, I like to fuck, or I like, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. things that regular people do, whether they like hip-hop or not. Yeah, yeah. Back in the days, you could get away with making a song that's just about protecting hip-hop, and how whack these MCs are, how whack the radio is, right. I, I'm underground, and everybody else is whack. <laughs> but now, no one really, you know, no one except for hip-hop has over 40 care about that. Well, you know, kind of springboarding off that, I mean, I look at, like, your album Gravitas, for example, which is, like, very lyrical, personal, kind of uh, autobiographical. And, and I've seen interviews where you've described that record as all about lyrics. And I even read one critic who wrote that the track Inner Monologue could launch a million think pieces with its pastiche of ideas and commentary. My flow is sicker because the flow with vigor. I'm no beginner, peak the whole agenda. Control my center because I gravitate with gravitas. This my inner monologue. Burning down your party because the cocktails is Molotov. A crime I make you stop like a drop. Don't get wally wild. Actually battery in my back like a copper top. Got it popping. Started on the B side of body rock. Direct the fan. I'm running my shop like a mama pop. Modern day slavery. Today to be an artist. Watch it. Treat them like a product. I can try them out like a hot and top. These Molly Pop niggas not caring if they body rock. Partying like Mardi Gras, get the cream like Hagen Dye. You obviously are very much revered for. Um, for your lyrics. And so this new stream of hip-hop has emerged that's been called, you know, post-lyrical. Um, so a guy who is a revered lyricist, what are kind of your thoughts on some of the changes that you're seeing even in, in hip-hop's aesthetic in recent years? Well, two things. One, I'm happy to be on this podcast. I'm happy to be the first guy to represent hip-hop on this podcast. But, you know, you guys are doing a podcast about songwriting, Yeah. right? I mean, you guys are a little late on the hip-hop. Right? Right. Right. You acknowledge that going in. You know right, right. admittedly. But what I do know as someone who's written songs for a living is that, like, who's considered one of the best songwriters? Well, Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney is revered. Smokey Robinson, right? right. Yeah. These guys are revered as, like, the best songwriters of all time. It's not because of how many words. Hmm. It's because of how little words they use. Hmm. Right. There's, right. A rapper, there's a rapper evidence, rapper-producer from Dilated People. And he has a line that I love. It's not where you place your words, it's where you don't. Hmm. So me as a lyricist, I'm known for long, wordy class. And that's, that's all well and good. And I, I, I own that lane. But I, I can be jealous of someone who would say what I said, but just in a couplet, in like some romantic, you know, Brian Wilson type of lyric. You right, know what yeah. I'm Like, you know, a guy like Soldier Boy or a guy like Gucci Man will go on the radio right. and say, I don't care about lyrics at all. And that'll make the average hip-hop head really mad. Like, oh, I hate Gucci Man. I hate... How dare they? <laughs> right, right. You know, right. but me as someone who makes a living writing complex lyrical schemes, I'm impressed by the idea that someone can make a great song and that doesn't have to be lyrical. Yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, what's the song? Tequila. That's a great fucking song. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Uh, Barbra Streisand. That song. Barbra Streisand. And that's the whole, how the whole song goes. Right, right. You know? Right. Barbara Streisand. It's doom, 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 doom. Barbara Streisand. I'm like, that's brilliant. <laughs> right. I, I, I'm impressed by that. And I'm not threatened by it. They can't do what I do. Right. Someone has to do what I do. And I, that, mm. that's got to be me. But yeah. I, hey, man, I'm, as a songwriter, I'm impressed with you writing a good song. It doesn't mm. have to, li- a good song does not require great lyrics. 
um, you know, uh, Chuck Mangione had hit records that had no lyrics whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to ask you, um, your your fifth studio album, Prisoner of Conscience, was released in uh, 2013. And, um, you know, I listened to a song like Come Here on that album, and it, it obviously it shows that you have various aspects of your um, artistic side. You know, you can do different types of, of music. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. I don't want to waste a second. We have here some And I'm curious um, what the, I mean, I, I, I have a feeling I know the answer to this, but I'd like to get your thoughts on what just the title of that album, Prisoner of Conscious, meant to you. <laughs> um, I often, when I do interviews, people, the first question what people would ask me is, you know, try to get me to talk bad about other rap artists. Hmm. Um, and they're like, well, you're a conscious artist, and this person is not a conscious artist, so how do you feel about Jay-Z? What do you think about Puffy? And it would always be like people trying to trap me in this conscious box. So I did an interview with some journalists, and I said, I said, I feel, I feel like people are trying to make me a prisoner of this conscious music. I'm a prisoner of conscious. Hmm. And, you know, this interview made it to Wikipedia. Wow. And, the, and Wikipedia said Tyler Qualley's next album is Prisoner of Conscious. So then I, I could always tell which journalist had just read Wikipedia because they'd be like, so your next album is called Prisoner Conscious, <laughs> even though I had never said that. Right, right. right. But, but so many people asked me about it that I was like, well, maybe that should be the next album. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I named the next album that, but then I, immediately I started feeling like, well, if I name now Prisoner Conscious, I got to really represent actual prisoners of conscience. So that led me to actually going to visit Mumia Abu-Jamal and, and led me to uh, link it up with Harry Belafonte with the Sankofa organization and, and dealing with Meet in a Dream Defenders were, and then I and met uh, uh, Black Lives Matter folks down there. So me naming the album Prisoner Conscious manifested a whole new chamber of activism. I was already known as an active, activist artist, but... Um, it, it connected me closer to grassroots organizing yeah. by naming the album that. Yeah. yeah. And no, note to future interviewers, if you only use Wikipedia, you will be found out. <laughs> you will be found out. <laughs> um, well, last question real quick, just kind of in, in a way bringing it full circle after what you said about Q-Tip earlier. But um, I want to ask you about your contribution to uh, The Killing Season, which was on A Tribe Called Quest's celebrated comeback album from last year. Winter in America, never the white Christmas. L7 squares, always making my shit. Spring is in the air and all the flowers bloom. Powers that be, want to devour the movement. Tears disappear when they fall on the summer rain. Leading through the smite, they call it entertainment. Running across stages of drug. It's like the blood that we crumple the raw pain. Let's call it the Lord's name, cause we taking it in our veins like they're feeding us at your beans. Just born, we fighting for interest in millimeters. How did that come about and, and what did that mean for you to work with those guys in that capacity given you know that it all kind of started uh, with them for you yeah i mean absolutely i'm glad that that's not lost on you because you know as as i as i mentioned to you that's sort of my family tree where i come from uh, my one of my hugest influences and i've, I've known q-tip since my first time that i ever got put on where remember i said people didn't take me seriously till i had high tech beats mm, right. i did a, i did a lyricist lounge event that q-tip hosted and 
I had those high tech beats and I performed those three songs I had with high tech and I got off stage and Q Tip was like, That was dope. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's when I met Q Tip in nineteen ninety six. Um so most deaf was always very close with Q Tip. They're both Muslims. Um, I'm not a Muslim, so they 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 formed a, a close connection where Q-Tip has always been hovering around my my circle. But right. I didn't really know him. Yeah. Um, uh, a few years back, um, I asked him to produce a song on my album, and um, for years we've been I've been going over his house, sort of working on this one song. Yeah. Um, and then Fife passed away, and then it was like, oh my God, um, that was just that was just awful for everybody. Yeah. Um. So I stopped talking to Tip about the song. I just didn't. I, it was hard for me to even bring up any song. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Um, and I saw him at Afropunk, where Ice Cube. It's funny. I saw Ice Cube was performing two blocks from my house where I grew up. Wow. And an event called. And it's funny because I said my style was Karis Cube was Q-tip yeah, Ice Cube. Everything's full circle. To, right. Yeah, I go to see Ice Cube perform, and Q-Tip is there in the, in the backstage waiting to see Ice Cube perform. Yeah. Wow. And um. And he's like, yo, why don't you come over to the house and work on that song? And I, you know, it, it had been a few months since Fife passed away. So I was like, okay, great. Yeah. And then um, I went over to his house the next day, and Jerobi was over there, and they were listening to songs off the new Tropical Quest album. Right. So I, at that point, I again stopped talking about my song, and I just just started hanging out. And I just started going over there every day just because I couldn't believe that they were working on a new Tropical Quest album that had yeah. Fife on it. Yeah, yeah, and just to even be witnessing that happen was just what my focus was when I was going over his house. And then one day they just asked me to get on the song. Yeah, wow. yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think the best songwriters, the best musicians, never stop also being fans. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, you got to be a fan. You got to be a fan and a and a consumer of all of it. I mean, yeah. you got to. That's I think what keeps you connected to to the fans. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to us today. This has uh, been a fantastic uh, yeah. discussion, very enlightening for us, and, uh, and, and oh, really thank enjoyable. You. I'm happy to bust your hip-hop cherry. <laughs> <laughs> That's the perfect way to put it. Nah, I appreciate you guys reaching out. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. And we look forward to getting together again with you next time for Songcraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters. 